0: podcasts are taking up so much more time than comics. I feel in my soul I'm a cartoonist and so I, I i should say that I do my anonymous fuzzball like therapy animals series. I draw them in my notebooks all the time. I have this series of like hundreds of drawings of animals just saying little bits of wisdom I've gotten from different therapeutic resources over time and I make those all the time especially during pandemic. All my narrative faculties kind of collapsed and so that was like the least I could do. So that's what I was doing. But am yeah. um, my soul, I'm a cartoonist. So I feel I feel the urge. I actually tried to sell a graphic novel uh, a couple years ago. And it just like the offers did not line up with what I needed to spend multiple years on this project. So I am now going to try to pitch something a little bit easier, like Anonymous Fuzzball or this Calling Dr. Laura podcast I'm hoping can launch a sequel-ish kind of graphic memoir. So then I have a real a real reason to sit down and draw again like that. So yeah, not a lot. Not a lot of diary comics.
1: What do you attribute the, I guess, not lack of interest, but what do you attribute the sort of issues with the earlier book deal to?
0: Well, I mean, for in the, the nuts and bolts of it is my book Fetch did not sell as many units as the publisher wanted. It's always been the thing with, I mean, this is like maybe very deep in the weeds, but being at Houghton Mifflin, who represents like Lord of the Rings? I am and will always be a small fish, and so like I, you know, whereas Fetch sold very well for a comic book. If it was at a comic book publisher for a big publisher, it did not sell well. It hurts my body. It takes a lot of time. It takes hundreds and hundreds of hours, and so so we got some offers, but I, but my agent and I felt like I needed a little bit more to be able to sit down and work on something.
1: You get two, three books deep, and your expectations for especially if if your expectation is that you are going to do this as a thing that you survive on for an extended period of time.
0: I've always felt, it's always been like one of three jobs. It's not like I'm even ever expecting a book to be my full-time job. You you know, because we know each other. I've always had a lot of pans in the fire and ways of supporting myself and figuring out how to make it work. But there comes a point where I'm like, I just, I would love to have just three jobs instead of five jobs. And if I take this, if I take this offer, it's going to break my brain. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to work on a different graphic memoir. I'm just going to pitch a different graphic memoir, pitch some anonymous fuzzballs and just see what, see what feels easy.
1: Would you feasibly be able to sort of alter the time frame and just spend less than four years working on it and just like have that be your thing that your income for that period of time?
0: Hmm. I don't know. The book we were pitching at the time, I'm letting it rest because I... Have other books in my crock, in my brain crock,
1: mm-hmm. my yeah, crockpot, yeah, yeah, in my yeah, brain, yeah, brain crock.
0: And so, if one of those books worked out, and I could find a way to draw faster, I definitely would. For whatever, I just want to draw something. Like, it just sounds fun. You haven't been doing long
1: form stuff. You said during the pandemic, which I, it obviously the past year has kind of broken all of our, our brains. So. Is it that at this point in your life, you can't like write on spec that it needs to be clear that that a, a publisher is going to pick up this comic before you sit down and devote that much of your life to it?
0: I think, I think it's a combo. Um, I would write certain things a little more on spec. I would write... You know, I would do something with animals on spec. I have like so many pages of comics about a sloth named Sloth Moss that I've done just out of the goodness of my heart. But the idea of drawing painful, painful moments from my life and having to draw myself again feels like a bummer. I need to find a new way to draw myself that feels like less of a drag because the idea of drawing myself as a very detailed human being going through the hardest experiences of my life, that feels that feels very hard. I don't even, that wasn't even answering your question.
1: Have you drawn yourself as an animal?
0: I, I have for, um, you know, since Fetch came out, I've been in some anthologies and I've done some stuff for the Nib and different publications. I've drawn myself as a dog and people as dogs, which I really liked. And I teach an MFA program for California College of the Arts. And I'm always telling my students to like let themselves off the hook for humans and draw themselves as animals, as like an expedient way to do visual metaphor, to tell a story and to not, because it's hard to draw humans and they're ugly and the proportions are weird. And so when students can't draw them, but they can draw something else, I'm like, draw what you enjoy and then do it. And then I don't do that. And so then I sit there and I go, I don't want to draw myself going on a date. Yuck. But if I could draw myself as a dog, I would be delighted. So that's the kind of thing maybe I would draw a little bit more on spec.
1: Is it the sense that you're maybe doing something really serious and personal a disservice by drawing all of the characters as animals?
0: No, I think that it's, this could be one of those moments where I'm in my own way where I actually, well, I should back up and say I've worked on several things that have just not gone through. And the thing that has gone through is podcasts. So I actually was working on a book about gender for kids with Judith Butler like a famous gender theorist, and this man, Ken Corbett, who's a child psychologist. And I really wanted to draw the kids as animals. And I had to explain and defend to people that I wasn't trying to hurt, dehumanize children by drawing them as animals. Like I've just had to have conversations sometimes with people where I'm like, no, it's not disrespect. To me, it's the ultimate respect. And it's a way of saying certain things. Like if a kid's going through a hard gender time, I don't want to draw a photographic, realistic picture of them having the worst time of their life. I'd rather have it be something abstracted so they can look at it and just get the feeling of that without being traumatized. But having those experiences of having to explain to people like, no, no, I'm not disrespecting the story by making it animals. Here's, rep- here's El Defo. Here's mouse. You know, here's this. Here's that. Having those conversations is a little bit exhausting. So now I just imagine myself having to have those conversations as I draw heavy material with myself as a dog. And I feel prematurely exhausted.
1: Obviously, I know that logically. Obviously, you know that logically. We, we've both read a lot of, of comics, but there is there is a disconnect. You feel like the disconnect is that you, you're you already thinking about the conversations that you're going to have to have about this book after it comes out?
0: I think I'm I'm thinking about a couple things. One, I'm locked in my brain in the way I draw, which I think a lot of cartoonists will understand. Like You see other people's drawing styles, and you're like, I wish I could draw like that. And physically, you could. If somebody said draw like that, you could be like, oh, here. When you sit down to draw, you're like, but this is just how I draw. So it's like a little bit of that. Like I've drawn 700 pages of myself in one way. And so then breaking out of that is hard. But I'm imagining myself having to sell it to an agent and publisher's And having that conversation before I even get started. I'm afraid. I'm also afraid that it will age it lower, which is fine. But I just can never tell if the things I'm drawing are for kids or adults.
1: Do you get a sense of this book? I mean, is it roughly the same wheelhouse as like Dr. Laura, for example?
0: There's a lot of things in my mental. I'm so sorry. I keep calling it a mental crock. I know it's hard. It looks hard for you. My, It's not even an Instapot. It's a crock pot. It's like a low temperature for a long time. You wonder if it's spoiled, but it's not. It's just still cooking.
1: But it's not like fondue. No, 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 no.
0: <laughs> it's not fun. It's just like when you get home from work 12 hours later, something's going to be there, but it just takes a long time. I think that has something to do with, I think it has something to do with what ha- like family and identity and gender maybe because I'm thinking about like I wanted to do a comic about my Syrian heritage and re-finding that but I was writing that comic right before the 2016 election and then the end of the comic kept changing every minute because when I wrote the comic it was like my mom and I were talking about her sponsoring some Syrian refugees isn't that great we're having a connection over our cultural heritage and then it was like the Muslim ban. And then everything was like worse and worse and worse. And the end kept changing. So I never finished the comic. For people who read Calling Dr. Laura, my mom's half Syrian. She really cut me off from a lot of my family by keeping a huge family secret from me my whole life. And so I think this book might be more me finding, trying to reconnect with parts of myself that I grew up with that I got disconnected from. Because of family secrets, and because of being gay, and not having a place to actually talk to those people anymore.
1: I think we might have talked about this before, and this is something that I talk to a lot of musicians and and artists about. Generally, is the having distance between yourself and the subject matter. Obviously, that's certainly the case with Dr. Laura and and Fetch as well. Um, it sounds like you're running into one of the more pragmatic problems of not having that distance. It would ostensibly be something in your past if you're gonna sit down and work on a, a, a graphic novel for four years. Just logically it can't be too tied to the current moment.
0: Yeah. And especially I mean, that's the you know, the thing about comics journalism too, is just like if you're talking about events as they're unfolding, if I'm trying to talk about an identity that's shifting because America's shifting, I need some space. I can't even imagine. I always think about what if I had drawn Calling Dr. Laura now at age 40 instead of at age like 27, which I thought at the time too, but just the opportunity was there. So I did
1: it then. You thought about waiting longer to draw it at the time?
0: Yeah. At the time, I actually consulted a psychic to say, should I do this book now or when I'm older and have some perspective on my actual life? And she said, you know, this is the time to do it. If this book's going to happen, this is the time to do it. So just do it now and it will take you somewhere you need to go. So now I'm kind of surveying the wreckage and bridges that that book built, and I'm I'm kind of – I'm collecting it all into my crock pot.
1: What is your sense of how the book would be different now if you let it sit – if you let it crock? What is the – what's the proper verb so for crock sorry.
0: Pot? Long slow cooker? If you, if
1: you had left it in the crock pot for you know, another 13 years – what's your sense of how that book specifically would be different?
0: I mean, at the very end of the book, I found my father's family. And that opened up a whole new world. It opened up like a whole new world and a whole bunch of corridors of like family secrets that just compounded on top of each other from every angle and people that had family secrets with each other. And then I was the one busting in the room being like, but isn't that the truth? And everybody like, losing their minds over it. So I would have been able to add that. But also like, I kind of think now as an older person, I would have really um, edited out my bad girlfriend at the time. Even It felt important to put her in the story because she was so instrumental or they, I don't know that person's gender anymore. They were so instrumental in bringing me to the secret by just peer pressuring me that it felt important at the time and I was so heartbroken at the time and it felt like my family structure I had built had fallen apart. But now as an adult I wonder if there's a more expedient way to say that. As someone with a little more writing experience, a little more editing experience. I don't know. I mean, I'm happy that the book exists. It is what it is. But I feel I can build on
1: it. It's kind of pragmatic storytelling issues. It's just you becoming a better writer more than anything kind of personal or or contextual.
0: I think so, and you know, and I'm sure a lot of people, you know, uh, approaching middle age, look at their books from when they're 20 and are like, "Oy, oy ve." You know, like "Invincible Summer," my zine I did when I was a teenager. And so when people are like, "I got Volume One of Invincible Summer," I'm like, "Please burn it. Thank you very much, but please, please." Oh, see, like he's, he's pointing at his bookshelf. But what? Oh, but also, like, I've had like another damn decade of therapy since then, and my relationship with my mom has had like woven around and I'm able to see the ways that I was just like stalling because I was still afraid of my parent, which, you know, maybe I still am. I think, I think like writer, I had like a writer's journey that kept going after that. I had a family secret journey that kept going. And then I've had like a, yeah, I've had this spiritual or, you know, growing up journey.
1: Not to get like too metaphysical about it, but obviously a big part of your growth as not only a writer, but I would assume your relationship with your mother and your family generally was shaped by actually having done the book itself. Part of the reason why, you know, you've had this like pretty dramatic breakthrough is because you spent all this time working on, not only working on this book and and processing it, but like putting it into the world because um, I assume, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, uh, but it's been a few years, but I assume like, Maybe your mother and other people weren't exactly thrilled that it was out in the world the way it was.
0: You may or may not recall that my mom gave me a one-star review for calling Doctor Laura. She also gave me a one-star review for Fetch. She's quite consistent. However, we have been we we have been in active touch since then. We've never talked about the reviews, but they're under her real name. So no, she didn't. She didn't like it. She actually did yell at me the other day, calling me a backstabber. If that's helpful to know.
1: That she did call you a backstabber.
0: Oh yeah, very recently, she brought up the book Apropos of Nothing and started calling me a backstabber and I had to hang up on her and be like, I love you very much, let's talk later when you're feeling more calm.
1: You haven't spoken specifically about the reviews, but you very much have spoken about her feeling about the book.
0: Here and there, only here and there. When the book came out, when the book came out, my stepdad called and left me some threatening voicemails telling me not to, um, that I've really upset my mother and I I was forbidden from talking to her about my supposed father or my so-called lifestyle which means being gay and then but then something happened where i think she read the book she wrote the review before she read it as you do then she read the book and left me a very teary apology message that just said i read your book i'm humbled i'm sorry and that was that was huge to me
1: that sounds good
0: yeah and it, it may not be the reality that exists for her every moment but in that moment I was like, okay, I feel like something happened here.
1: It's kind of a, a random thing to throw at you. Although I don't know, maybe it's not so much the content of the book or just the fact that you wrote the book that you like aired what she felt was her private history.
0: Family secrets are there for a reason. And it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of compartmentalizing shame and rewriting the story. And so that I think even if I had just said Even if she found out that I had said to one other person, here's what actually happened in our household, I think she would have the same feeling of Mm. you have betrayed me by saying your version of events, which is different than my version of events because I tried the best I could. You know, I think ultimately like she tried the best she could and she didn't mean to hurt me, but she did. So me saying that is triggering like a whole kind of shame spiral guarded by anger that's like. Stop saying that. Stop saying that. It's so uncomfortable.
1: Hey, the fact that it's in a book for strangers to read, though, I mean, that does change the math a little bit.
0: It does. It's, you know, it, it's gotta be awful to have a kid that turns into a writer, but that's it's just the that's I for me, it's it's like it's weird. It's a part it's a part of the whole thing of just having a family and a relationship with somebody where there's no space to say your version of events. Because their version of events is so loud. And so dramatic and so punitive that there's nowhere to say it. But every human being gets to have their own experience. And so when I was a kid, for me, that was just in my diary. That was the only place where I could see myself reflected back or like an accurate representation of what happened that wasn't rewritten or revised later to look nicer was being like, no, this is what happened. And so I just If my family was a family that didn't keep huge secrets and didn't try to control information and like whitewash what was going on and actually could acknowledge feelings, then maybe I wouldn't be a writer in the first, maybe I wouldn't need to process my feelings in this particular way. And like you were saying, I would never have processed the grief or the feelings around that family secret um, and the instability of my home without, without having gotten a book contract to do calling Dr. Laura. I never would have even let myself sit with those feelings that long thank God I draw laboriously long pages.
1: Were you in therapy when you were working on that book?
0: I can't on and off. I started going to therapy when I was like 22 or 23. And I did that. I started that book when I was 26 ish. Um, And so I can't remember if I had a regular therapy. I think I, I, I bopped around with different therapists at that time, but I've been in therapy on and off since I was, 22, 23. And then when the book came out, actually, and my mom st- and I started getting the harassment campaign from my mom and my stepdad, and my dog Beja died, and I broke up with my long term partner, then I started hitting the therapy hard. I started hitting the, the therapy bottle like four days a week if I could.
1: Part of why I ask is because, you know, you, it's, this is often overstated, but you, you, obviously you were using writing as a way of processing, which, you know, people who aren't writers who are in therapy. That's how they utilize therapy generally, and I'm wondering what the interplay between those two things is. Does therapy serve a, a different function for you? Is it is it is it a different different outlet, or are you processing things in similar ways th- through these two different outlets?
0: I think that for me, or I know that for me, writing and drawing things is a way of expressing expressing the emotion. Like I have all these pent up feelings. I'm like, what could I do with all these feelings? And I have to remember that I'm an artist and be like, oh my God, I could actually just go do this. So that's a way of expressing the feelings and just acknowledging them, getting them out of my body so they're not just like stuck there. But the therapy part of it for me is helpful because it sometimes challenges my narrative around things. So it's not just me talking to myself in an echo chamber of, because, you know, like my, my brain, my emotional brain is built in a fraught way. From the people I was raised around. So therapy is helpful because I get like different tools for dealing with other human beings and people challenging my narratives, like my long held beliefs where I'm like, well, obviously I'm a mean person. And someone's like, is that true? Whose voice is that? Like that kind of like, oh, well, that's, that's just what my mom told me every day growing up for my entire life. Why? why? What, are you, what are you trying to say? It's, it's helpful to have outside stuff. I heard somebody say in therapy before, Growing up, I didn't get a lot of tools. I got a lot of weapons and I feel that way. I feel like I came out of my household just like in a crouched position with like claws, just like, don't hurt me. And it's like learning to be gentle, which was not part of my verbiage.
1: Did you have those tools when you were writing the book? Was there somebody there to serve that role for you?
0: Mm, I don't. No, I th- I think it was really pa- I think it was really patchy. I think that when I signed, it really was just after it came out. When I signed the contract for Calling Doctor Laura, or when I went to pitch it, I was like, okay, I am going to have to have enough money from this that I can go to therapy regularly. And then the amount of money I got from my first contract for that book was so was so low that I actually cried when I signed the. Um, When I signed the contract, I just wept because I was like, oh my God, I have two full-time jobs. I thought that I would be able to quit those jobs, but now I have another job. So I think that I also didn't, I like couldn't afford it. And so I don't remember what I was doing at that time. I, I tried at different times while I was drawing it and it was very patchy. I had people I would see for a little span of time and then I wouldn't like them anymore. And I would try out someone else. And I like, it just it took me a while. It took me until like I found a good therapist I liked starting in about 2012. And I started seeing her in earnest in 2013.
1: Obviously, you've been a fan of ad- advice shows for a long time. I mean, that's kind of the whole hook of calling Dr. Laura. At what point did it occur to you, though, that you maybe had a skill set to be on the other side of that equation?
0: I'm just willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. Well, I first I started my advice column, started in Invincible Summer, my zine, as a joke, because I wanted to just answer some questions. So I had a back and forth conversation with myself. I was like, dear Nicole, how do I get gross men on the bus to talk to me? And I was like, oh, the answer is simple. Visible tattoos. If you're looking to strike up a converse, an unsolicited conversation. Just have visible tattoos. Someone will whip off their shirt faster than you could even say. And so I started it as a joke in my zine. And then... Somehow it just kept going. And I can't remember how. I I mean, I honestly think like it's a blessing and a curse. You know, like I grew up in such a chaotic environment that I loved order and rules. And then other people would be like, you seem like you're kind of rigid. What should I do? And I, well, I know exactly. Here's the rules. So just follow the rules. I, th- I mean, that's kind of all I just I, I've, I've been through. Well, now, you know, now. I don't know. So when I started, I was unqualified. I don't think anyone's qualified. I don't think Dan Savage is like a genius. Like he's not like, it's like Mensa was like, you're allowed to give people advice now. It's like, he just decided to start giving advice. And then he got life experience and started, you educate yourself along the way. Cause you start giving advice and you start listening to other advice and reading books. And currently I feel like I have tens of thousands of dollars and billions of hours spent in therapy and therapeutic environments. So give me your questions. I'll do my best. You're not legally bound to take my advice.
1: You must think you have aptitude for it. And, and obviously other people think you have aptitude for it and that they are listening to the show. If, if you thought you were really bad at it, I assume, unless it was purely jokey, that it's something that you probably wouldn't have continued doing.
0: If people said, you ruined my life, <laughs> then, you know, sure, I would I would give it another thought. One time no, I did no one's go ever to- said that? No, but I will tell you one time on Sister Spit Tour, we were at like Bard College and some young student was like, hey, I asked you last year if I should date my best friend's ex and you said no. And I just want you to know, no, we live together. And I was like, okay, well, good for you. <laughs> I still have the same advice. I think, you know, you're opening a can of trouble with that, but, uh, you know, enjoy your life. You're not, you're not legally bound to take my advice, and apparently you didn't.
1: Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that is imagine a scenario in which the advice that you're freely offering is that absolutely you should date your friend's ex. I mean, I would say nine, nine times out of 10, it's going to land badly that, in that direction.
0: Yeah, I just, I mean, some of it is common sense. We may have talked about this on the podcast before, but like, I think of advice as kind of I don't know if it's like a metaphor. I don't know what you would call it. But I think that people are going to ask for advice. You're going to tell them your opinion. They're not necessarily going to take it, but they're going to have that in their own slow cooker in their brain so that when they're ready to make that decision, they have you backing them up because generally people know the answer to their question when they ask you. And when you're listening to any advice program or reading any column, often you can kind of see the person knows within themselves what they should do. They just need someone else to say, yeah, do it. That's why Dan Savage has that dump the motherfucker already. Where people will call and be like, Dan, my boyfriend's so terrible, but he's really sweet. What should I do? You know what, they know what they're saying on some
1: level. We talked about the show before you launched it. I think, you know, you were asking some like technical questions around launching a podcast. How seriously were you taking it at that point? Was it just sort of, I mean, obviously, you know, job number five or six, but was it something you were just kind of launching on a whim?
0: Well, I always ever since I was a kid, I was recording myself doing radio shows in my room, as possibly you were too, like making tapes where you're recording things off the radio and then you were like a host. You're like, This is W B R I A N.
1: I'm from the West Coast, so it would have been a K.
0: This is K Brian. <laughs> K Heat. Coming to there you. Go, with fresh <laughs> Here's Paula mm-hmm. Abdul, promise of a new day. I was doing that ever since I was a kid, and then I just wanted to, I just always want to have a talk show. And then I was doing a residency in Vermont, in Virginia, and I was very lonely. And that was a great way to connect with my friends. Also, I was having all these bands stay at my house all the time and artists touring people stay at my house all the time. We're having all these great conversations about art that I was like, I wish my students could, I wish my MFA students could hear this. Why does this have to be a privileged conversation? Why can't I, I wish I could just share this information freely.
1: How much of a lifeline has it been for you in the past 12 months?
0: Oh my God. Well, you know, it's, I, I have, I surround myself with a lot of people that also have, I don't know, honestly, I don't want to say workaholic tendencies, but I have a lot of different friends who I see them most regularly if we have a project to do together, as opposed to like, let's just hobnob. So certain friends, I know I can see them on a consistent basis, a consistent schedule, And that's it's nicer to be like, do you want to be on the podcast than like, do you want to just sit and stare at each other on Zoom? And so that's been a great lifeline. And, you know, maybe you don't know, but I did meet my mannish wife. Well, I didn't meet her, but I reconnected with her because she heard an episode of the podcast in which I talked about rescuing a baby squirrel at the beginning of quarantine and her listening to my podcast made her reach out to me which spurned our romantic element of our friendship.
1: I know you got hitched, which congratulations if I didn't say so already, but I, I didn't know the origin story. I also didn't know how quickly it happened. That, that was the beginning of quarantine?
0: It was, but we knew each other for 16 years. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't. It was very, it was very fast and very slow at the same time. But yeah, it happened at the beginning of quarantine. I rescued a baby squirrel. The baby squirrel turned the beat around. It made me focus on something besides myself and my loneliness and like hugging a tree in my neighbor's yard. And um, so I did a podcast about raising this baby squirrel. And then Kaya was like, hey, if you ever want to talk about baby squirrels or yelling at men in the street for jogging without a mask, let me know.
1: Am I misremembering? It's been a long time since I read Dr. Laura, but isn't there a reference to uh, the the speed with which lesbians move in together? The the
0: U-Haul? There is. You have a really good memory. There's like the joke, what does a lesbian bring to a second date? A U-Haul.
1: Which, to be fair-
0: We got engaged and that felt really cool. And then it felt like the world was crumbling around us and that maybe the world was ending. And so then I was like, well, if we're engaged already, why don't we just elope and then we can get married someday later again when people because it was like all of Oregon was burning down include like the fires were surrounding her childhood home um, where her parents live on some farm. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just died and Trump was still in office. And it was like, gay marriage may not even be legal at some point. And one of us might get coronavirus and or something might happen to your family. And we need to be able to be there for each other legally. So let's do it now before everything burns down and everything's illegal and we get shipped off to internment camps.
1: I mean, you had known each other for a while, but everything was really expedited by the fact that the world was very clearly ending at the time.
0: Yeah, it was a little bit like, oh, duh, this is just the right. Person, this is the right thing. Duh. Um, I can't believe it took us 16 years. Like everybody we know who knows both of us was like, oh, yeah, you guys never dated? And we we're like, no, I don't, we just didn't. So it was a combo of like the right person and then being like, oh, this thing that we want to do in the future, we need to do now because the world might be in.
1: Is there any sense, other sense, in which the past year and everything that's happened has expedited or otherwise just kind of, I don't know, compelled you to to do something that you might not have otherwise done?
0: I went to Portland. I went to Portland to have some relief from LA and then to be with Kaya. And then because of that, I stayed. I stayed there for seven for a longer time than I for seven months because LA went into like a Crazy coronavirus fugue state of just number, the numbers going crazy and the hospitals overflowing and dead bodies in the streets, not really dead bodies in the streets. But so I stayed in Portland for a long time. The podcast, the calling doc, the, so the podcast that's an adaptation of calling Dr. Laura is called Relative Fiction. And we had planned, my producer and I, Claudia, to do a road trip around America to see my family members. And interview them for the podcast. And so I was actually going to be able to have this kind of like family reunion slash let's have a candid talk about the family. And instead, everything had to happen via Zoom. And I found out that my mom and stepdad were not social distancing and were going on like road trips at the beginning of quarantine. And I was like, Claudia, we got to do this podcast quick. Because I don't know how long these people are going to be around. this is a barometer of what's happening with the rest of my family members. And no one's wearing a mask and everyone's going bananas, like living like nothing's happening. Let's do it quick. Because I don't know how long they're all going to be here.
1: Why was the time right to revisit this book?
0: Claudia came to... So Claudia, my producer, works at Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland. She came to LA and did a story about me in summer or fall of 2019. And I just... I've been in L.A. and Fetch, my other book, has an option as a TV show. And I was like, I want something to happen with Calling Dr. Laura because it's a crazy story, it's just a crazy story. And I can't believe how much garbage I see that's made into TVs and movie, TV and movies that are not even so extraordinary as this story. And so I was like, I kind of want to pitch it to like This American Life or something. And so then I asked Claudia if she knew how to do that. And she was like, well, why don't we just make a podcast series about it? She's like, I don't think you should pitch it to something that like that for a 10-minute piece. I think that we could make a whole podcast series about it. And so that's why. I mean, I just – I wanted to expand on the story because a lot of wacko things have happened. I don't want to say wacko, but just like very meaningful, huge, and equally bizarre things have happened with that story since the book came out. And I wanted the space to tell
1: it. So how do you undertake that process of – I don't know if recreating is the right word, but um, I guess sort sort of retreading some of that source material as as an audio series.
0: It required hours and hours. We have, I mean, at least 24 hours of interviews with different family members, family members from the time of Calling Dr. Laura and then family members I've discovered after the book ended and all hearing all of their versions of stuff. We basically had to make an outline that was like, here's what we think is going to happen. Let's talk to all these people and then see if that's what's really going to happen. And so then we talked to those people and we found out more things that we never knew. We also inc- we had a seance with my father, with astrologer and psychic medium, Jessica Lanyadu. And then we kind of just went backwards. I'm like, okay. And I had to learn how to write a story in a journalistic way, which is just like listening to the tape, seeing what was there, and then building a story around what we what we had people saying on tape.
1: I suspect you powered through the séance thing because perhaps you don't want to spoil too much of it. Can you give me anything like how how that went down?
0: Okay, I was just so you know, okay, so when I've seen séances on TV or in movies like um in Hereditary, you know, they're often like at a table Indoor. There was no like tiny chalkboard that was like, grandma, it's me. <laughs>
1: didn't go great in Hereditary.
0: It didn't go. I mean, it went great the first. She was excited about it. It didn't go great when she tried it at home. Do you remember that part? I've rewatched that movie a couple times. I do. The ghost child writes like, granny.
1: It's not the part I remember when I remember Hereditary, but it is a part that I remember when I remember Hereditary.
0: What was his name? She was like, baby Stewie. I. So it was not over like a, a tablecloth with like a lace cloth and a crystal ball at nighttime. It was social distance coronavirus style. So I was, Kaya has an Airstream trailer on her parents' land in in rural Oregon. So I'm sitting in the middle of the day of like a sunny Sunday afternoon and I'm sitting at the built-in kitchen table by myself in this Airstream trailer while Kaya and the dogs run around outside and like chickens are squawking outside laying eggs. It was me and Jessica and my producer Claudia on Zoom. And I mean, it's just Jessica's used to doing that. I am not a disbeliever. I feel like there's a lot of things I don't understand in the world. I don't even understand science. I'm like I, I'm like the insane clown posse. I'm like, magnets, what's up with that? There's plenty of things I can't explain. And for whatever reason, Jessica was able to say a lot of things about my dad that we heard echoed throughout all of our conversations with his best friend from childhood and from the military, from his widow, from his kids, from his sisters, like- All these things they said about him, sometimes the exact same wording, came out of Jessica's mouth. And some of this was before we had had those conversations with them. Some of it was after. None of this she knew about or could even know about. And she just said a lot of things that felt very spot on about his character, his personality, and the words that people would use to describe him and how he felt about himself.
1: Not necessarily a believer, but clearly you're willing to give these things the benefit of the doubt to some degree. You mentioned earlier that you consulted a psychic in the process of writing, calling Dr. Laura. And I don't know. I mean, obviously they're different things, but to me there's some overlap there between uh, seeing a medium and, and seeing a psychic.
0: Oh yeah. Well, actually Jessica was who I asked about. Jessica's somebody I know socially. She doesn't know anything about my dad because I never talk about my dad, except for like, hey, can you believe it? I found out my dad was alive through a psychic a different psychic. When I went to see the palm reader who revealed that my dad was alive after he had been dead my whole life, I was like a, I, like I dabbled in astrology and that was kind of as far as I had gone. But then she said the psychic, the palm reader said this thing that just like shook my whole life. So then I was actually cautious going to see Jessica or any other psychics. And like anything, I think it's like who you choose and what their filters are. Uh, and I, I trust Jessica's filter and also, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was willing to see what she had to say and I was willing if it felt if it felt right, if it felt accurate to believe it. I'm not a disbeliever, but I wake up every day and like bow down to a... I,
1: I think it's fair because I think even if you do believe in these things strongly, you still understand that there are, there's a certain percentage of people doing them who are hexters and who are objectively trying to take advantage of them. Like Just because you believe in mediums or psychics doesn't necessarily you believe that that each of them has that ability. So I assume that picking out a medium or picking out a, a psychic that you consult regularly is probably a pretty similar process to choosing a therapist.
0: Yeah, you kind of have to like someone's point of view. It's like the same source material. A lot of therapists went to school at the same place. But it's just like, do I like this person's lens? Do I like their perspective on my life? Do I like what they've done with their education and how much they're willing to tell me?
1: It sounds like part of the process of doing the show. I mean, you know, you, you started it because you wanted to revisit the source material and, you know, perhaps adapt it into something else. But it sounds like you're also potentially using this as a springboard to write a follow-up. Is is that something that you're actively thinking about in the process of making the show?
0: I kind of, I actually already drafted, I put it on my Patreon at some point. I actually drafted a follow-up to Calling Dr. Laura that included... A lot of the emotional beats of what happened next. People I found, what they said, different, like, you know, like I'm things like me missing my dad by just a couple years and finding out that he dropped dead in Kansas City where I grew up, even though he didn't like all these weird little near misses. I actually had written a draft of, I thumbnailed out like 80 pages of a book about that experience. And then as we've gone, through this podcast, I've learned more things about him that have expanded that considerably. So that's the kind of that's why I talk about like my book being a, in a slow cooker, because I need to process the information we're finding out. And I need to process like, OK, if this person's saying he was a hero and this person's saying he was a scumbag, where do I lay and is what is my business? What am I even doing here?
1: Near misses are interesting, right? I mean, obviously, when you're talking about kind of broader narrative story beats it's the it's the hits that you are those things when everything aligns like that that's like the exciting next chapter of, of the story do you think that it's possible to construct something around not quite getting there
0: i mean it may have to i think it may have to but i feel like there's something more for me to say in the book about identity and family and genetics and place And I haven't quite grabbed, I can like, it's like in there and I'm like grabbing for it, but it hasn't quite crystallized yet.
1: Maybe this is like a nature versus nurture question, but as you're finding more out about him, do you feel like you're finding more out about yourself?
0: I'm not sure. I'm fine. You know, it's weird. There's times when the process of us talking to like his widow and my half siblings and his family members, there's times where I feel disconnected where I'm like, whoa, these people are so different than me. Here's a story they're telling me about somebody I may have liked, but I don't know. So there's parts where I feel disconnected where I'm like, well, I'm still just going to go home and be a a queer weirdo person here. And we, I, I don't know, like there's those things, but then there's also things that make me feel very reflected, like people describing him and describing things that like him being so funny and an artist and like all these things about him that are like me, that were never reflected back where I grew up. So like things that happened when I was a kid where I'd be like, hey mom, I drew you this poem and it happens to be a dirty poem without meaning to. My mom was like, oh my God, this is trash. And just like shaming me for things that my dad would have laughed off and been like, you know, oh, chip off the old block. Or like meeting, sib, like finding siblings and grandparents who have a lot in common with me and making me feel very reflected. And like, I don't, I'm like a caveman or like Nell or something where I just... Sometimes I'm slowly being like, "Oh, this is what genetics is. This is what family is. Like, I look like these people, and we have similarities. That's interesting. Like, I think I might need a little more time for that to stew because that, I, it still feels remarkable to me."
1: The looking like part is is pretty easy to grasp. It's the the being completely disconnected from these people and still sharing these personality or other, you know, more sort of less tangible traits. That's the harder thing, I think, to wrap your caveman braid around.
0: Or just like, what does it mean? I mean, just the, cra- the craziest things have happened. Like somebody along the way, a couple people along the way used the word kidnapping for what my mom did, of my mom disappearing. And then like, th- like having her family threaten my dad when he tried to find me and her changing my name and telling people they could only talk to me on the phone if they didn't tell me who they were. Like my mom at some points did things that I don't having relatives be like well you know that's that that kind of estrangement that kind of purposeful estrangement is kind of like kidnapping and just hearing things framed in a different way than I've ever even considered them maybe that I, that might be able to change me I don't know
1: I don't know if you did this for the last book but with, with this sort of stuff coming out first in the podcast and potentially in a follow-up are you kind of finding a way to brace your mom because like that's a that's a pretty tough charge to level against somebody. And and it sounds like in some ways for her it's going to be some of those issues she had with the original book kind of replayed.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It is you know, none of it is said in malice. It is just people reflecting back what happened at the time. So it it just it will or it won't. And I just you know, I love her very much. And I would very much like to have graceful, easy time with her as she is 70 plus years old. However, I'm also not going to be a punching bag if she's like, I'm mad that you found out that I did this.
1: Early on when you were discussing perhaps the the book that is kind of on the back burner that you had pitched and and had gone through, you had, when we were talking about uh, drawing yourself as, as animals, you'd mentioned painful moments. In the context of that book, it can it continues to sort of be a big part of the, the work you you do. Has there ever been a desire to do something a little less personal that takes
0: oh, I would love that.
1: yourself out of the equation.
0: I mean, yes, I would love to do something with my anonymous fuzzball animals. It seems easy. It seems not painful. It seems healing, and it fe- it forms a bridge between me and people that need it, and that feels great. I'm working on, um, or I'm drafting, I have like a million notes about a graphic novel for young adults. It still is a little painful. I mean, it still would be about like a kid running away, basically, and then finding another kid. And then I am working right now, and I'm just, I'm working on an animated show with my friend Sarah Gertrude Shapiro. We're working on an animated show that's just about the world's biggest cat and the world's smallest dog. Uh, solving mysteries and fighting for their Portland neighborhood. And that is just, you know, it's kind of like, that feels like taking it easy. That feels like fun. It's fiction. I get to wrap my brain around it, but also incorporate things that I know very well. So those things. I also would love to do a book about the queer
1: animal kingdom.
0: My God, I did a calendar about that a million years ago, and I realized that book still hasn't existed yet.
1: Was it The Fetch... Series or the fetch fetch being option is that what moved to you to L.A.?
0: No, actually, that's being optioned by people in in London or in England, in the U.K. That hasn't that hasn't come to our shores yet. But I came to L.A. It was a combination of a lot of my favorite friends that I met on Sister Spit all moved here at the same time. Everybody was working on Transparent slash. It felt like Hollywood cared about gay people and women for one second or like queer experiences or feminist experiences for one second. And the more I came to LA, the more felt like it was here for me, the more stuff was here bringing me back. And part of it was like, yeah, you want someone to make calling Dr. Laura into a movie or a TV show come to LA. That's, that's where it will happen. Um, And I thought that would be fun. The sun is a really interesting thing to explore Being outdoors and being warm is remarkable. And it just was like a lot of people I really, really, really love. And it just so happens that my paternal grandmother found me after calling Dr. Laura came out. And she lives an hour away from here. She lives in Orange County. And so I was able to actually spend time with her before she passed away by living in Southern California.
1: Obviously, this is continuing to evolve as you're doing this project. But where do you land on the hero asshole spectrum when it comes to what you've learned about your dad?
0: (sighs) I think both I don't know I don't I think he was a I think the truth is always somewhere in between you know I think you meet one person who's like that person's a trash bag and another person who's like this was the best person who ever lived and you're like okay let's well, somewhere in between there somewhere in the in the middle of the maybe both of those things are true and so the reality of him on the day-to day is somewhere in between whether I would have been better or worse if he was you know around I don't know different people have said I don't I think you would have been disappointed if you found him. I think that you would have, you were similar and I think you would have butted heads and I don't know if he would have known what to do with you, but it's all speculation.